Well, good morning. Hope everybody's got their Bibles this morning. I'm sure you do. Turn with me to John chapter 7. Don't panic. We're going to do the whole chapter today, but it's important that we do this chapter together. And so I want to let you know what's going on. First of all, I just want to introduce you to a few things um, that you may or may not be familiar with. So if you've got the sermon notes, pick those up for a minute. This is my outline. You're going to see a little bit more information that's on here on the screen behind you. And if you flip it over, you're going to see a so what and a now what. A so what is my application. We're going to get there in, in just a little bit. Now what is what we talk about in our small groups that meet um, even tonight and throughout the week. And, but what this does for you is, even if you're not part of a small group right now, you can take this passage of Scripture, and you can not only, with the notes that you're going to take today, but begin to work through these questions. It could, it could be part of not only your family devotions, but also your personal devotions as well. We think about one passage of Scripture as a congregation all week long. And not only that, at the end of every service, every week, we do what the Lord has told us to do. We go to the tables, and so the tables are set behind you. You'll see one, one set has sealed elements in it, and one has them in the cup, and you're welcome to go to either one. That's our response to God's Word. We respond. Our baskets are at the back. We respond through giving. We respond through of the Lord's Supper. And so just wanted to explain that with you. Next week, we're looking forward to it. It's going to be our six-year anniversary. We're going to be worshiping outside. And providentially, we're going to be doing sort of what the Jewish people are doing in the text today. We're going to be setting up our booths. We're going to be setting up our tents. And we're going to set up some tents out there. We're going to celebrate what God has done in the past, what he's doing in the present, and what he's going to do in the future. That's what's going on in the text today. So if you got John Chapter 7 pulled up. Stand with me to your feet. We're going to read verses 37 to 44 just to sort of give you the understanding of what's going on. Remember, we have been talking about in John that the opposition to Jesus and his ministry is growing. And not only is the opposition growing, but it seems to be confusion over his identity is growing as well. And so I want to give you a feeling not only of the feast going on, in the context, but also the confusion over Jesus' identity. So look with me. John 7, this is God's word, beginning at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Verse 40. And when they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we come to you today feeling much as the Jewish people would in that day. There were some that were very excited. There were some that were confused. There were some that were oppressed. 
there were some that didn't understand why God let the Romans oppress them. And yet, by God's providence, you told them to gather together and to remember some things and to look forward to some things. And so do you do with your church. So God today calls us to remember what we have forgotten. Calls us to rest on the only God who saves. The only God who knows what tomorrow looks like. And has given precious promises to his children. Thank you, Lord, that we can call you Father. And we can do it in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Every week as I study, there are different guys who really makes an impact on me as I'm studying. J.C. Ryle made a, the greatest impact in my studies this week. He, he summarized three feasts that are, that are going on. The feast of Passover, the feast of Pentecost, and the feast of Tabernacles. Many feasts were what they call pilgrim feasts. They were required for the Jewish people to come to Jerusalem. Sort of an ingathering of God's people. And so the context for chapter 7 through this whole chapter is the feast of booze or the feast of tabernacles as some have called it. Last, well, the last few weeks, chapter 6, was the feast of Passover. That was that season. J.C. Rowell sort of summarized it this way. For Christians, the feast of Passover points to the cross where Christ redeemed us, where his blood covers us, and where he led us out of captivity of slavery into freedom. The feast of Passover for believers points to the giving of the Holy Spirit, where Christ would give the Holy Spirit to those people that he redeemed. The Feast of Tabernacles likewise points to the coming of Christ. When, when the Lord will return and he will gather his people together, he will reap his harvest on earth, and the celebration of that time will never end. And so the Feast of Tabernacles is critical to understand the text today. It took place in autumn. So it was about six months between when the Passover happened and when the, the Feast of Tabernacles happened. I just want to summarize. There's a lot going on in this feast. Three things. First, it took place in autumn. It was the time when the harvest had come in. And so though we come to Christ empty-handed, once we are in Christ, we are never empty-handed again. And neither were God's people as they came to this celebration. They were not empty-handed because God had provided for them. And so they came to celebrate and to make offerings of gratitude. In other words, this feast was to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Thanking God for the present provision that he had given them. The feast was also a required pilgrimage. An ingathering of God's people. It was nothing but pure celebration. In other words, this feast, the context of it was to create and to, and to stir up an attitude of constant rejoicing amongst the people of God. An attitude of gratitude. An attitude of constant rejoicing. And thirdly and most importantly, this feast required all people, those who pilgrimed in and those who lived in Jerusalem, to make makeshift shelters out of natural things they would find laying around. And so they would make this shelter and make it of reeds and limbs and different things. 
There would be holes in the roofs. And if you lived on a house, you would go outside of your house on the flat part of the roof. You would create a shelter on top of your house. It was like this camp out kind of season. If you pilgrimed in, you would build a booth or a shelter on the road. For seven days, you would live in this. They were all called suckets. This was to remind the people of, to create an attitude of dependency. For them to remember when they were in the wilderness, they had nothing but God. And so they would come out of their homes and they would live in a makeshift tent to remind them that day we had nothing but God and God always provides for His people. This is what they were celebrating. They were, they were drawing themselves to two realities. Our God will supply today and He will send His Messiah in the future. There is a messianic hope in this in this feast. The themes of water and light was big. They would take a water that was drawn out of Siloam. They would carry it in gold bowls to the temple where they would offer it. This was the context of this. It was the context when Jesus would begin, as he already has, to answer, who is Jesus? You see, in the midst of all of this celebration, there was still that nagging question. Who is Jesus? No one agreed. It was a nagging question that loomed even over this celebration. How would Jesus answer it? Have you ever got really bad news? Everybody, you live long enough, you're going to. The, the, the news from the doctor, someone that you love and care for, someone, something out of nowhere, the shock and the out of control hits you. When this happens to me, I normally get sort of nauseated. Just that, that nauseous pit in your stomach of what you've just heard and what's going to happen. But have you ever had this happen? In the midst of that, there's this kind of calmness. This settled resolve that settles in. It, it feels sort of like this. My God is good. He's good. He's been good to us. And He will do what is best. And we are going to trust Him. Have you ever had that happen in the middle of that? Here's the question. Where does that come from? Where does it come from? When other people are having breakdowns in the midst of that. Why does God's people have a settled calmness, a peace that passes all understanding? I think Jesus wants us to know today. The main idea, God sent Jesus to provide living water for all those who thirst. There's some 20 questions here in chapter 7. Just boiled it down to one. Because all of it really, all the other questions, and we're going to look at some of them, wants to ask this question, who is Jesus? Look at verses 40 to 43. You see, this is the context that's going on. This is the, the feeling of the, of the time. When they heard these words, verse 40, some said this is a prophet. Others said this is Christ. Look at the difference. But some said, is Christ come from Galilee? Look at the conversation over verse 42 and 43. There's confusion. They don't even really know where he came from, right? Because he really is from Bethlehem, if you look at the text. He really did, was born in Bethlehem. But they don't know that. There was confusion. So how are people answering this question? Well, here's one of the ways they were answering it. He is either deceived... Or he is a dangerous deceiver. Those are pretty close when it comes to you. You ever been knocked on the door and some, somebody comes and wants to tell you about 
this Jesus that, not the Jesus that you worship, and you ask yourself the question, is this person deceived, or are they a false teacher trying to deceive me? Not always easy to answer, is it? Some have saying Jesus just deceived. His brothers thought that. Look at verses 3 to 5. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. Verse 4, For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Look at verse 5. It's a sobering. For not even his brothers believed in him. His own brothers. Let that settle in on you. This is Jesus. His own family thought he was deceived. They were willing to capitalize on it if it would be to their benefit. Well, go make yourself. If you can make life easier for us as Jewish people, we'll for sure take the blessings. But they didn't believe in him. You see, this is important for us in the biblical south where everybody you ask is a Christian. Who your daddy is did not make you saved. Who their brother was did not save them. Their brother was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and they were lost. Spiritual privileges does not make you saved. They had no faith. They thought he was deceived. Interesting, look at verse 6 and 8. See this all the time. Jesus says this all the time, doesn't he? Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Verse 8, you go up to the feast. I'm not going to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Important point. Jesus didn't come to earth to gather a crowd. It wasn't his goal. Matter of fact, we know what just happened last week. Everybody left. Everybody left. He was, him and the disciples were left. He's functioning on the Father's timetable. Remember we said that last week? He is consumed by the will of the Father. We'll see that again this week. He was practicing Psalms 1-1. You remember? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the seat of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You are deceived, Jesus. Or, look at verse 20 of chapter 7. You're just, what we would say, slap crazy. You're just crazy, Jesus. See, the crowds answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? In reality, the the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were trying to kill him. The crowds were saying, who's trying to kill you? You're nuts. That's what he was saying. That he was either insane, he's just paranoid. In other words, some people said Jesus just had a Messiah complex, right? Just had a Messiah complex. You know, the people, the, the people are the Messiah, have to think they're the Messiah. We hear about them all the time. Everybody's out to get you. You just think somebody's out to get you. You're crazy. Or worse than that, it's what the leaders thought. He's, he's dangerous. Look at verse 12. He's a deceiver. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man. <laughs> look, at, look at the extreme. He's a good man. Others said he is leading people what? Astray. In other words, he's deceiving them. Look what the religious leaders do in verse 32. And the Pharisees heard the crowds muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. The question is, why would they arrest him? Because he was leading the people astray. For them, he was just a blasphemer. Someone who needed to be removed. 
look what happened when the soldiers come back empty. Matter of fact, it's one of your growth group questions. Why did the soldiers come back empty? Verse 47, the, the Pharisees answered these, these men sent to arrest him. Have you also been what? Deceived? Have you been deceived? In other words, he was a deceiver. He's dangerous. There is a danger here, and I'm not going to talk about it very much. Your growth group lessons are going to talk about this. The danger and the self-deceptive tendency of self-righteousness. The, the Pharisees thought he was deceived, that he was a deceiver. In turn, there is nothing that deceives you greater than your own pride. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So, you might want to stop yourself right at this point. Because if you're thinking of somebody else that applies to other than yourself, your own self-deception just caught you. The danger of self-deception. They thought he was the deceiver. And it was him, them that was deceived. But that wasn't the only response. The other ones called him, maybe he's an authoritative prophet. And I sort of pushed together three things here. Some said he was a good man. Verse 12, we saw that. He's a good man. Why did they think he was a good man? Because of what he did. Because he was healing the sick and raising the dead and casting out demons. It's a good man. Look what he's doing. But other ones called him a scholar. Look at verse 15. The Jews marveled at him and said, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Here's what they're saying. Jesus, where's your credentials? Where did you go to seminary? Where's your paper on the wall? Because you didn't go to seminary at one of our colleges. Where's your credentials? Remember Mark 1. We know this passage. It says that Jesus taught them. As one who had authority, not as the scribes and Pharisees. There was something authoritative about the way Jesus taught. And it made them ask, who is this Jesus? I, I didn't, we didn't train him. We can't find where he went to seminary. Where did you get your training, Jesus? That would lead some people, well, look at the good things he did. Look at the way he taught and said, well, he's the prophet. He's a prophet. In other words, remember, we looked at Deuteronomy 18. Moses said, there's one going to come after me greater than me. And you're going to listen to him. Maybe it's him. Maybe it's him. And other people said, no, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's who, it's, who he, it's who he was. He was the promised one. Maybe he is. Even in this declaration amongst the people, there was a question. Look at verse 25. John 7, 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Now remember, they just called him crazy. That's another thing. They just called him crazy for saying, Who wants to kill you? They realize they're trying to kill him. Verse 26. And here he is speaking openly, and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So the people are saying... Are our leaders finally convinced? Do they really know that he's the Christ? They just don't want to say anything. Can it be that he really is? Look at verse 40. 
When he heard these words, some of the people said, this is really a prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, does Christ come from Galilee? You see, three responses. Nobody agrees. Remember Matthew 16. You don't have to turn there. Remember Peter's declaration. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is interesting here in this, who do you say that I am? You see this progressive understanding and the spirit work in Nicodemus. Look at the very end of the passage in verse 50. I just want you to see that. I think this is also in your growth group to talk about. Verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, remember John 3, and listen to what he says. And who was one of them? said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So, he, so here we see the man who came to him in secret now is beginning to defend him and come to his aid publicly. The gradual work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Nicodemus is he, he understands, I know who this is. So how did Jesus answer all of these questions? I sort of boiled them down to three. But Jesus answers, declares one central thing. I am the water that brings eternal life. I am the water that brings eternal life. In other words, he answers the question, where do you get your credentials, Jesus? Where did you do your training? Look at verse 16. He answers here. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. little sidebar here. One of the ways you tell a false teacher is whose glory is he seeking? You see it? He said, I'm not seeking my own glory. I'm seeking the Father's. In other words, my credentials come from my Father, and my Father is in heaven. Chapter 5 and chapter 8 and chapter 12, over and over and over again, Jesus consistently says, I can do nothing without my Father. I don't say anything unless my Father tells me to say it. In other words, Jesus did not create His doctrine. He didn't create His teaching. He didn't wing it on the fly. It was delivered to Him. My, in other words, here's what he's saying. The reason I speak with such authority is these words are the Father's words. God's word. He gave them to me. That's why they're words of life. That's what we said earlier. They're the bread of life. And that's why today we see that they're the water of life. My words are authoritative and powerful because of the origin of whence they came. And second answer. It's almost the exact same answer. My words come from the Father. My credentials are from the Father. I have been sent by the Father. Look at what he answers again in verse 28. Now this word proclaimed, we're going to see it in a minute, cried. He's not just saying, now, y'all need to listen to me here. There's a time in parenting when we need to get quiet. There's a time in parenting when we need to elevate our voice. Jesus' voice is beginning to elevate. So he proclaimed, 
as he taught in the temple. You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him, listen, you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Who am I? Jesus had no problem answering that question. We all try to answer that question. Who am I? I have been sent by my Father with the words of life. That's who I am. You may know me. Here's what he's saying. You may know my physical address, and you may know my physical parents, but you do not know my Father in heaven, because if you would have, you'd know me. No matter what their response. Remember, everybody had already left him. And yet he says, I know who I am. Because I know who my father is. And my father sent me to do his will. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. Look at what else he says. This is the core text. Verses 37 to 39. I have come that you might have life. Look at verse 37. This is where the context has got to come back in. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Very important. Get, the, get that picture in your mind. He cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So remember those three things that we said the feast was doing. That what people would pause and remember was when they had nothing but God. It was God that put the manna on the ground every day. He was the one who brought the quail in. He was the one who brought water from the rock. Unending water. And listen... There wasn't ten, ten people in Israel wandering around in the wilderness. Do you know how many people were out there? <laughs> they remembered that. That's what this feast was for. To remember the one who gave them the manna, not the manna. To remember the one who gave them the quail, not the quail. To remember the one who gave them the water, not the water. To remember God Himself. This ceremony involved a pouring out of water. The water was critical here. That's why John puts it here. He puts it in his context so that we can understand this. Imagine the scene. All of this celebration built to this one moment in time to where this water and these gold bowls were brought to the altar to be poured out as a drink offering to God. It was solemn. It was quiet. Every Jewish person was required to be there. Do you get the scene? And over the top, at this moment of outpouring, it was Jesus Himself that said, screaming nearly, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus said this, at the moment in time when the people were remembering God's provision of water, past, present, and future. In other words, he was saying, this Messiah that you're hoping for, I am him. I am the one who's come to give you life. And I have not come to give you a cup of water, but a river. A river. This, this text points us back to what we read last week. Isaiah 55. You could turn there if you would like. Isaiah chapter 55. Remember the whole context of this, se- this section is the suffering servant. Remember the invitation. Isaiah 55 verse 1. 
This is, what he's, this is who he's quoting. Come everyone who is thirsty, come to the water. And you without silver, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Jesus is the one who stands up. He's the point of the feast. Your Messiah that you are longing for. The one who brought you the past provision out of the wilderness. The one who brought your crops and put them in your lap today. That money that's in your bank. That job that you have. That house that you left this morning. None of it is yours by yourself. God gave it to you by His grace. They remembered it. They remembered it. And He stood up and said, I am the one who provided for the people in the wilderness. I am the one who brought your harvest. And I am the Messiah. You're not waiting for me to come. I am here. And I want to give you something more than your crops. More than your job. I want to give you life that comes from your soul. And that no one can... He says this on a day when everybody was remembering that there was a time when they were stuck in the desert. and thought about that this morning. If you look down there at the fountain machine. See that fountain machine over there? I went over there. You know how many drinks is optional on the fountain machine at a, at a restaurant? About eight. So you go to eat almost anywhere. How many choices of beverages do you have? At least a dozen, right? 12, 14. Not to mention you can get it caffeinated, decaffeinated, regular, you know, sweet, unsweet. That's not the context of this. The context is they're in the desert. If you're in the desert and you're thirsty, that means you're dying. That's what that, that's what that meant. That's what they were remembering. This water that they were pouring out, it was calling to remember. That water that he brought meant life. It was life or death. Turn with me. I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There is a unity in Scripture. It all teaches us the same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I love how clear Paul is here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Verse 3, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Did you see it? He was the bread of life. He is the water of life. That's exactly what Jesus stood up here to declare about himself. Who am I? I am the rock. That brings you life in the past, water in the future, in the present, and water for the future. Again, thinking about C.S. Lewis, who warned us that we as believers are far too easily pleased. That we would dare be satisfied with a cup of water when the Lord says that the Holy Spirit is a stream of living water that flows out of our very soul. Look at verse 38. Whoever believes in me, out of, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What does he mean? 
Aren't you glad that I don't, you don't have to worry about what I think about that? Look at verse 39. John tells them. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He's saying that which is going to be in you that, that is causing the rivers that flow, that which satisfies, that which we can trust, that which is unstoppable and immovable is the Spirit of God that will be given to you. So let us just pause ourselves for a minute. I read this in part of my studies this week. Donald Whitney says this, said this, The Lord blesses conformity more than giftedness. So just a reminder for us all, Jesus does not need you. He does not need you. He does not need your talent. He does not need your money. We desperately need Him. So much so do we need Him that we are told to, in order to be saved, we come to the cross empty-handed because salvation cannot be bought. It cannot be earned. You don't give it because who your grandmother is. It comes through repentance and faith in Him. And here's what he promises to all those who come empty-handed. Your hands will never be empty again. Oh, brothers and sisters today, I hope you did not come and gather yourself with the body of Christ with empty hands. Because you don't have empty hands. We don't come to the plates or to the tables or to the gathering or go into our workplace empty-handed. For we are those who have been given the Spirit of God and from us the rivers of water flow. And we cannot and we do not want to stop it. This has come back to our beginning illustration. What happens in believers' life when the cancer comes? When criticism comes? When suffering comes? When testing comes? Here's what we do. We turn off the noise. And we open the book. And we remind ourselves who our God is. And what He has done in our life. And what He has promised to do in the future. And it is in that moment when the river begins to flow. It is that moment, brothers and sisters, that you know you have been redeemed. Why? Because of the Spirit of God in us. That flows especially when the times of depression and the cloud that flies over our country right now that has been here since March. Brothers and sisters, it is time for the believers of God to set up their booths. We need to set up our tabernacle. If you need to set up one physically, then do it. But you need to gather your family somewhere and you need to remind yourself who has given you everything you have. What do you have, brothers and sisters, that you did not receive? And let us be drawn to gratefulness. Let us be drawn to thanksgiving. So what today? What's flowing out of you? It's the promise, isn't it? For those who believe, God will put His Spirit in us, and out of us would flow life. <laughs> it's not conditioned on your situation. Isn't that good news? You know what I've found? It seems to flow more in the midst of bad situations. God's Word is true. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Promise, for they shall be satisfied. What flows out of us during the hardest times? What flows out of you during the hardest times of your life? 
Stop and remember. Could have been sort of different 20 years ago than it is now. Our family got our own sort of bad news this week. So what happens when you get that bad news? That cancer report. What happens when you lose your job? What flows out during that moment? When the season of your life changes. When those little children grow up and they leave. What happens? What flows out of you in those moments? When things happen in your life and you can't control them. When those you love the most in your life leave you. When life just won't stop and let you get your feet out from under you. What is flowing? I have noticed that in those times, the Spirit of God and His comfort and His power seem to be the most evident. Here's what scares me. Here's what scares me today for many. What happens during the best of times? What flows out of you in the best of times? What begins to flow out of you when you get the new girlfriend? What flows out of you? What flows out of you in her? Into him? You see that? There's the test of faith. During the best of times, when you get the new girlfriend, when you get the new boyfriend, when you get the new job or that raise and you begin to make more money than you ever thought you could. What flows out of you when you get the new beach house? When you get the new boat? When you're up late at night and no one is around and your computer is on? What flows out of you? think we would agree like the Jewish people of old we need to take time and so I just want to give you three attitudes that should be flowing from our lives listen remember what we've already learned the spirit of God works through the word of God the spirit of God is not some mystical little vapor that flies around. He is a person who works through means. And the spirit's power and the spirit's comfort and the spirit's flow works through the word of God. So let's think about three things. They're not in your notes. If you're writing them, you're taking notes. You have to write these down. But they're the same as the beginning. We're just coming back. We're landing the plane where we started. Three attitudes that should flow from our life. One, we should have an attitude of gratitude. Take stock of your life. Stop for a minute. Yeah, you do. You got 15 minutes. You got 30 minutes. Yeah, you do. Take stock. Do it this afternoon. Think about the grace of God in your life. Think about your physical situation. Think about what God has given you that you do not deserve. Some of them live in your house. Some of them are with the Lord now, but you need to take stock. You need to remember that parent is with the Lord now, that you did not deserve to have such a one. You did not deserve the kids that you have. You don't. You need to take stock about those physical things. And then you need to take stock and remember the time when you came to the Lord. Do you remember what was in your hands? Nothing. I sinned and loved it. And so did you. We sinned and loved it. Now sometimes we sin, but we hate it. And in the moments that I need Him the most, He has always been there. 2 Corinthians 9.15 says, Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. It's inexpressible. 
listen, nothing gets the river flowing like gratefulness. Did your river stop today? Did you answer those questions sort of in the negative up top? How do we, how do we cultivate these attitudes, gratefulness? An attitude of gratitude, an attitude of constant rejoicing. Philippians 4, 4 says this, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say, rejoice. Here's our misunderstanding. We think gratefulness and rejoicing is an emotion. It is a feeling. No, brothers and sisters, rejoicing and gratefulness is a choice. It is a choice we make. I will be grateful, and I will rejoice, whether I feel like it or not. I will put my mask on and I will gather with the people of God and I will stir up myself and I will cause myself to remember the goodness of my God because I did not deserve to be standing here today, but here I stand, saved, redeemed, and adopted. You see that? That's a choice. You're not always going to feel like being grateful. And you're not always going to feel like being thankful and rejoicing. This is what the tent was for. That's what the tabernacle was for. To remind them. Look up at them holes in your roof. That little shanty you're living in. The people of God lived in that. And they never wanted for a thing. Because God took care of them. And so he does for me. Third. An attitude of confident dependence. An attitude of confident dependence. Here's what they were doing at the, at the feast. God will supply. He will bring what they called the rain in the spring, the rain in the fall, and the latter rains. He will bring the latter rains. You know what the Jewish people were thinking about with that? Not only over the crops and their harvest, but the future coming of their Messiah. would bring in a time of joy and peace. And through Jesus Christ, that has come spiritually for His people. God will supply all of my needs according to His riches and glory. Do you need to be reminded of that today? And listen, part of the reason our needs may not be met is because we have forgot that the God, the Lord always used means. When He saves you, He didn't save you as an individual. He saved you individually to be part of His church. And God takes care of you through the body of Christ. That's the way it works, brothers and sisters. And it's always worked that way in the church. God takes care of you through His people. He loves you through His people. Remember what is coming. Remember what is coming. Turn with me to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. We're done. I want you to see this. This is what's coming, brothers and sisters. Revelation chapter 21. Look at verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. Look at this promise. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Brothers and sisters, let us remember today as believers, the Holy Spirit is the one who brings life new to you, 
Grace new, joy new, peace new, hope new. And he will bring it new for you every morning. Just as he did in the people in the wilderness. So he does for him, for us, in fullness. What Jesus is promising is not just to give you something that will go away. But will give you the spirit of God. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So here's the question. Who do you say Jesus is? How are you answering this question today? Bow with me. Let's pray. As we come to prayer and to a response, let us remember the words of God. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. But the one who desires to take the water of life without price. And so God, today we have heard your word. And now Lord, we as your people are about to respond. Every one of us, Lord, is about to respond. In one way or the other. And so Lord... I don't have the right attitude, Lord. Forgive me. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us six years together as a church. And you have grown us exponentially, spiritually, Lord. We are not the same people who planted that church. And we didn't do that. You did. And so, Lord, we give thanks to you. And so, God, next week, we want to spend the whole service giving thanks to you. But now, Lord, would you receive our worship? Lord, as we go to the tables during this, during this music, Lord, we go remembering that we could not save ourselves. Somebody had to die for us. A blood had to be shed for us. A body had to be broken for us. But he... But your son did die, and he, your blood of your son was shed for us. And so now we go to the tables to remember by his stripes we have been healed. We have been reconciled in God. How could we be anything but generous, anything but grateful, and anything but thankful after such an inexpressible gift? To receive our worship as we sing. Receive our worship as we come to the tables. And as we give our offering. And Lord as we leave. And enter into life. Where the ocean begins to hit us. Again over and over. God may you give us the strength. And the power and the resolve. To stand firm. Until we call it. Lord I pray for our students. Who are in such a hostile environment in school. And in college, Lord, would you give them what they need? Be worshipped now as we respond. In Jesus' name, amen.